You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Welcome to Her Money. It's Jean Chasky, and I am on a little field trip about three blocks over and 20 blocks down from where we usually record the podcast at CDN Studios. We are here at the brand new Skim headquarters. It is decked out, as you could expect, with a lot of wonderful turquoise and white and it's adorable and very, very cool. And I understand from our, the founders, Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, who are in a conference room with me that has a very strange name that we will get them to explain <laughs> in just a moment that this is a relatively new place. But let me bring you guys in. Thanks for having us here. Thank you so Thank much. You. This is such a treat for us. Oh, well, it's a treat for me because I know you guys from your childhood, your first (laughs) jobs out of college at NBC News. Yeah, your previous lives. You were both NBC News producers. Carly and I worked together very briefly on a show that I was doing. And you set off with this goal to revolutionize the way that female millennials and some males that I know very well receive their news and receive their information. And you now have 3.5, 3.5, is that correct? 3.5 million readers? Yes. Well over. <laughs> well over. Yes. That's fabulous. Thank you. That is fabulous. You started the skim, Danielle. Let me start with you. You started the skim from your couch. We did. Uh, so as you said, Carly and I, we grew up at NBC News. Uh, we, we grew up dreaming of working there. Uh, wandering through the, the halls of 30 Rock was, I mean, I think it was still our, our favorite place ever. It was kind of our happy place. Um, and getting to work there always seemed like a dream. Um, so we were, you know, in our, our early mid twenties, um, had worked really hard to get a foot in the door, uh, from intern to producer. And we loved what we did. Um, but it was kind of funny. We would talk about how our friends who are smart and on the go and went to great schools and had great jobs were asking us what we did for a living. Um, because they, they weren't watching what we were producing and they didn't know what was going on in the world. So they were asking us basic questions. You know, what'd you do today? We'd be like, Oh, well, we talked about this story. And they'd be like, Oh, that, that happened. And it's not that they didn't care. And it's not that they didn't know what was going on in things that affected them every day. So they knew about their own industries. They knew about their own interests. But it was kind of just outside of that, getting outside of their comfort zone. If you're not a news person, if you're not a news junkie like we are, then it's not the most natural or exciting thing to spend your day combing through news, especially in a 24-hour news cycle with so much breaking news to get you know around it and to get into it was really hard. And that's what we saw firsthand. Did you tell me about going from, okay, we know this is a problem and we think we have a solution to quitting your day jobs. I mean, that is a, that is a huge leap. So I think for us, um, 
it's when we talk about the story, it sounds like it was an overnight thing that was just easy and we went for it and went a great story. And I think the reality was we were 25 and 26. We were roommates downtown. We made no money. And (laughs) I know how little money you made. We really didn't make any money. And we would talk about this problem that our friends are having that Danielle described. And then we would talk about our own career paths. And, you know, I think, as you know, you know, at, the, at that time, not just NBC, but the media industry as a whole has changed so drastically in the last 20 years, let alone the last 10 years. And we um, saw so quickly that the path that we thought we were embarking on was rapidly like coming out from under our feet. And that there was no sense of stability and there was no sense of this is how you have to, these are the steps you take to reach success. So all of a sudden we felt very much like, okay, we've got to figure this out on our own. And so you know, I think we, we always joke like our bookshelf as we were in our apartment because we were roommates sort of said it all. We had a book that said the GRE. We had a book that said the GMAT and it was the GMAT prep. And then we had a book for, called The Secret. And I think <laughs> that we were we were really um, struggling to figure find our place. And I think there was also a little bit of, um, I would say karma or stars aligning. I don't know what you would call it, but we, we had this kind of like entrepreneurial urge. We were roommates in a very small apartment and I think there was no procrastinating. You know, anytime I would come home from work and be like, I'm just going to watch TV tonight, Danielle would come home and it'd be a reminder of, okay, if we're ever going to do something, like we're both here, like this is the time. So there was no procrastinating. And then it was like stars aligning. Danielle's promotion got delayed. The show I was working on got switched and it was an election year. And we realized we literally looked at how much we had saved up, which was not a lot. We had two months of savings and we knew as most TV networks higher up around election time that we could get freelance jobs for the election. So we really gave ourselves a window of it's the summer. So let's give ourselves two months. Mm-hmm. We'll get hired in a worst case scenario as freelancers around the election and then we'll figure it out. And that was the plan. So it, when we tell the story, I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny. We met a, an entrepreneur about a year and a half ago, and she said to us, I hate the two of you because your story's so easy. And we then hated her because we were like, well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> but I think people, we have a good story. That doesn't necessarily mean it was an easy story. When I, you know, when we tell the story today, part of me feels like it was a different person. Um, you know, when we quit our jobs, that was the hardest day of our lives to that point. Um, once we started the skim, it it got a lot harder, but I think it was terrifying. We didn't have a safety net. I mean, we had our parents and we knew that they would love us no matter what, but they weren't financially supporting us. We didn't have a lot saved up. This was it. And the flip side is we, we didn't have families to support. We needed to pay our rent. But we didn't have, you know, those huge life commitments yet. So just digging into that financial puzzle a little bit, because I think people hear, okay, you had two months saved up. That's a lot for a lot of people who don't Mm have $400 in the bank. Yeah. How did you bootstrap this in a way that you made that money last as long as it needed to last? One thing I think that is important to say is that we made the decision together to take on credit card debt that four years later, we just came out of. And I think it's something that we don't talk too much about, but it was something that we agreed to do together. We're like, do we, we both believe in this? We went through, we're like, what, you know, we kind of had a conversation that you have when you get, when you go to marry someone. I mean, it was like, what, what is every secret, you know, Christmas money that you ever got? What did grandma give you when you were five? Like, what are all the resources that we each have? And I, I think it's really interesting just to back up a little bit further, because I think that, you know, to even go into journalism, I took on credit card debt. So to 
to be able to afford my first job, which I had to move halfway across the country for in two weeks and get a job that paid 10 to $12 an hour without health insurance. Like I took on credit card debt. Well, and I did the so, same thing yeah. when I moved to New York and it, exactly. you know, not something that I was happy about or no, proud but about, but this was the dream. So I think that when we started the skim, I was 25. So I had just gotten out of that type of credit card debt, which was graduating college, moving, having a first job that didn't pay anything, paying off, um, which, you know, wasn't a lot, but at the time seemed like so much money. And then making the decision to take on more credit card debt again on credit cards that were horrible because I opened them when I was 19 years old in college. Um, so I think it's just, you know, for us, it was really, it was a big deal. And I think that we glossed over how hard or how big of a commitment we were making at the time because it was too big. The skim has been since it started. And, and I want to talk about the, the path to success, but in the eyes of those of us who read it, and I am one of those, I've heard you describe it, Carly, as your first eye opens in the morning and you look for it. And it literally is the first thing I read on my phone next to my bed, where I know Ariana Huffington told me I should not be keeping my phone. <laughs> she told me too, but, yes, yes, but it's, can't it's do still it. there. <laughs> I, I can't do it either. I, I still, I wait for, I mean, I'm considerably older than you guys, but I wait for the text from my kids that they've landed safely wherever they are and are in bed when they're on the road or something. So I need it. Beyond that, though, the fact that it took you four years to get out of the debt when to the outside world, this seems like it took off like a rocket ship is crazy. Yeah. Well, I think when we first started, I can't emphasize enough how much we didn't know. And I think there was a blessing because if we ever did something again, we probably know too much that I'd be so scared to like get it off the ground because we know all the things that could go wrong. But we really did not know anything. And that was to our favor and to our disadvantage because to our favor that we asked everyone questions. We had no shame. We were like, how do you open? How do you start a business? What bank account do you open? I mean, we just asked everyone everything. And when we started taking in, um, we started to think about, okay, well, we've got two months of savings that we was not a lot. And we were sharing an apartment that didn't cost a lot of money in terms of New York rent prices. So our costs were minimal and we were putting everything else on our credit cards. And we agreed to do that. There were very limited ways that we could get this business going. And there were a lot of people who were like, if you don't have to raise money, don't. And we didn't have that luxury. We had to raise money. And so the way and it's a luxury because when you raise money, you know, you're giving up part of your company in exchange for equity. Sure. And I think that when you hear people raising these large, large amounts of money, it's kind of funny because we had one entrepreneur come to us and say, you know, they had just raised a really big round and we said, congratulations. And they said, you should be saying, I'm sorry. And it kind of clicked for us, which is just exactly how much you give up um, in order to get that cash in. And that's something that we learned along the way. And I preface that by saying we have amazing investors that have been value adds and, you know, we're very lucky. Um, but I think in the beginning, we didn't have the option to look at it of 
can we actually get this to the point where we're raising money at a really great valuation? Um, we needed it to actually be able to do this. Yeah. So we, um, what we ended up doing was we were able to take in a small round of angel money. Um, we very quickly, I think one of the, our strengths as founders is we were really good at networking. So we immediately started developing a network, really jumping off of our current network from our, our MVC days and our media days to meet other people in the industry and meet people who supported entrepreneurs. So we started taking in small checks. We got, um, we raised just over $200,000, which was life changing. And that was supposed to last us for a year so that we could hire a designer. We could hire a developer. We could pay for our email service provider. We could pay rent. We were so terrified of spending it that a year later we had over half of it left and we paid ourselves less than minimum wage for the whole year. When we actually went with our accountant to go over like our tax returns for that year, we like saw what we had made and we were like, how did we just do that? Yeah. I, I remember just being like, oh my gosh, like, well now my credit card bill makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but we were just like flabbergasted. And so and we, you know, to date we've raised over $15 million. That is such an incomprehensible amount of money for us to think about. I mean, when we first, when we took in the first million dollars, we took a picture of our bank account. We sent it to our parents. We're like, this is what a million dollars looks like. I mean, we were literally getting our haircut because we like saved money to get our haircut together. We were taking pictures in this hair salon midtown. And we were, it was just like out of a movie. We were just so excited. We're like, this is life changing, except what our, a lot of our friends and family who don't necessarily understand how this all works, they actually thought that we were all of a sudden becoming really rich. <laughs> and that was not the case. That is not the case. So in that story, I think, um, you know, in hearing it again, it's kind of like, I hear why people think about our story and, and, you know, now it's kind of funny anecdotes to us, but in the beginning, you know, in order to get that first 200,000, we had to come up with financial projections and we had to make a business plan and we didn't know how to use Excel. We knew a lot of things from our great liberal arts education using Excel um, or basic, you know, business operations and planning was it, it was not one of them. Um, I think, you know, I got asked by an intern this week what over the past four years they thought had changed most about us. And I said that when we started, we were really um, we knew we were great at the editorial. We were so confident in that and we had a business sense. And I think now it's switched to, we have a really strong editorial sense, but we are getting really solid on the business side. And so that was kind of our journey going from taking in that initial 200,000 and feeling terrified to ask someone for $10,000 or $15,000, or actually everyone's putting in 25. Can you up that now having raised 15 million? It's insane to think about how hard we had to work to get those basic business fundamentals and feel like we could go to someone and be confident to say, Hey, we're first time entrepreneurs. We have a great idea. You should back us because it's going to be good for you. When you think about the money raising process, because there's a lot of research out there documenting the fact that it is more difficult if you're a woman than if you're a man. What advice do you give to the next you? I think be confident. I think that I've read all of this and I feel like my, our first response when we think about, you know, what's the difference with men and women and asking for raises or fundraising or everything is men 
aren't afraid to ask. And that's not something that, you know, we're saying, but it's something that I feel like when you read about it, you hear over and over again. Um, I think for us, everything was so new that we felt like we couldn't, um, ask for things or put ourselves online unless we had done all of our homework and knew every question that was going to come up. And I feel like in seeing this, the entrepreneurs that do it well, figure it out and they make a story and they invite people to buy into that story instead of worrying about the tactical details. You know, it's so funny that you put it that way because that's what keeps a lot of women from investing. When, when we think that we have to know every single answer before we even ask the question, mm-hmm. you were going to give some advice. No, I, I think it's very similar to what Danielle is saying, which is I think that we, the, the meetings that we did well in were the meetings when we were ourselves. The meetings that we went in with so much pressure and we're like, we are going to get this investment. We're going to like win over this fundraise, this investor. It was because we thought we were, we did all of our homework and we're like, we're going to say what they want to hear. And we would call people who knew whoever we were meeting and say, um, you know, what, what does so-and-so want to hear? Like, what are, what are, what are they interested in investing? How, what's their investment thesis? Like, what do you think we should say? And those are the meetings that we would build it up and we would, um, then be so disappointed when it didn't work out when the meetings that we were ourselves and, you know, in a way I cared less because they were like, we're just going in, we're confident that those are the meetings. That's how we found actually our first investors who have been our, our most ardent supporters and got us this far um, is because we were ourselves. So I think trying to do like a playbook and trying to follow these, you know, I see these articles of like, this is how to raise your first round and you should read that stuff, but you have to be yourself. You have to be like, this is my story. Believe in it because of this. I believe in it because of this. I also think there's so much you can do to prepare. And, you know, like you said, there is, you know, statistic about, okay, it's harder for women to raise money. So, okay, it's harder. Um, except that you're going to hear no, that doesn't mean you're not going to get the funding. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be successful. I mean, we heard no a million times. We actually times. kept a spreadsheet. So we, what I think, again, like the thing that we were best at was networking. So we, I think, thought like producers and like the same way, you know, we were given an assignment in our old job, like we kept lists and like, who did we talk to? Who do we need to interview? And we kept a spreadsheet of every single person that we met. And we would highlight it if that person would highlight that person, if they were someone who could afford to invest and highlight them, if we thought we should go back to them or highlight them if they said no. And we just, we still have that list, um, four years later and year one, I think it was over a thousand people. Okay. You did not ask me. (laughs) I emailed you. You did not. I did, emailed you to tell you about the scam. I didn't you did you email me yeah. to tell me but about the scam. But I thought that was awkward to ask you for oh, money. You should have but asked I should have for money. In. I yeah. didn't lean in. I invest in like I should have leaned in. You should have leaned in. in. You can ask me next time. Okay, I will. But well, I think, you. you know, we heard no over and over and over again. Like, we hate going back to Silicon Valley because it gives us, like, PTSD. Like, we just heard no. It was awful. Yeah. yeah. It was awful. I mean, that those were the most depressing trips. When we would fly all the way there, we would have these meetings where we thought our whole business depended on whether this person said yes or no. And the whole trip, we would hear no. And we would come back. And, you know, we had, I remember, a month early on where we had probably heard 15 straight no's. And you just make the decision to either, are you going to let a no stop you? Um, and if not, if you say like, no, no matter what, I'm, I'm going to keep going, then it kind of makes hearing the no's easier. Absolutely. You know, you know who to, who not to waste your time on. I want to just breathe for a second and then we're going to talk about the skim, skim ahead because it's 
fun and exciting and a money saver. But I want to tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like Carly and Danielle and all of us take charge of our financial lives because we deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time and you'll find more conversations like this one as well as information how about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. So skim ahead actually is, among other things, a money-saving tool. Tell me about where it came from. It's it's a calendar tool, essentially. So Skim Ahead, um, we're super excited about. We launched it just a few weeks ago. And for us, it was, we've been saying for four years now, we're not a newsletter company. Wait and see. But the first product that we released was an email newsletter. And we knew even before we launched the Skim that we weren't just launching an email. We were launching an email as a marketing tool to really get this, get in front of an audience that everyone wants to reach to be a part of their routines. And from there, build something really big on top of it. So we've been talking about this long game, if you will, for a long time, but, and our investors were behind it and our, you know, biggest fans and supporters were behind it, but we hadn't actually shown anyone what we meant by that. So finally we launched Skim Ahead this year. And the way we look at it is that the Skim as a company makes it easier to be smarter. And we do that by fitting into the routines of people like you and me. And we, whether it's your email or whether it's other routines when you're on your phone. So the daily skin email that over three and a half million people read every day is really breaking down the news very conversationally about what happened yesterday and what everything you need to know about today. Skim ahead looks into the future. Our favorite thing is that we can actually tell you what are the events that are coming up, whether it's your favorite show on Netflix, whether it's National Dog Day on Instagram, whether it's a meteor shower tonight, or whether it's a presidential debate, and say, these are the events you're going to care about. We're going to not only curate them for you, but we, we can integrate them into your calendar so they actually show up on your phone. So even for the Olympics right now, we launched a very specific Olympics-only calendar where you're getting notifications like, turn it on right now, Phelps is about to swim. Simone Biles is about to do her thing, but you don't want to miss it. Um, and so really, we it makes it easier to be smarter in a totally different routine and has really been a huge success so far. So we're very excited. That's yeah, great. it's been amazing. I think our audience has been waiting and wondering what we are going to do next. And I think this is an example of what really are the main tenets of our company, which is when we launched, we had you know, two ideas that were going to be the quarter of our company, a voice that sounds like your friend, um, and an obsession with the routines of this audience. So, you know, when we thought about the next product, it was obviously it's going to have our voice and it's going to fit into our routine. And the next routine after checking email is running out the door. And I don't know where I'm going until I look at my calendar. I know the skin makes people smarter and it makes people smarter about current events. How do you feel it makes people smarter about the economy and about money? I think that the easy answer is that uh, what the skim does really well is that it takes topics that people might not consider themselves interested in or experts on, um, whether that's the economy, whether it's finance in general, or whether it's politics um, or whether it's entertainment. And we break it down and tell you, you know, why this is something you need to pay attention to or why this is something that people are going to talk about. And you should feel like you can participate in the conversation. And I think for a lot of people, the reason why they don't jump into a conversation about the economy or about money in general is that they don't feel like they have enough of an understanding around it. 
Um, so what I think we do well is we take out that stigma that in order to participate in a conversation about the economy, you have to read the Wall Street Journal or you have to be someone that reads The Economist. You don't. We can break it down for you and we can give you the confidence that you need to jump into that conversation. And I think that's why people come to us again and again. And a lot of the times they write in about that aha moment. You know, I found myself talking about interest rates to my friend that was thinking about buying a house. And I've never been able to participate like that. And it's a great feeling. Um, and that's something that we're so proud to empower our audience to do. But it's not lost on me that you're, I mean, it seems like it's your biggest sponsor is Chase. Yes. I mean, clearly there is something about this audience that needs to know about money. Do you think that the millennial generation is smarter about money? I think that the, I can't say of whether they are smarter about money. I think that the millennial generation asked a lot of questions about lots of different topics and I think that's a great thing because they are looking for ways to maximize efficiency in their time. They're looking for ways to make smarter decisions. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of purchasing power or they're on their way to get that. And, you know, we focus on the female millennial and all the stats around that. But if you look at the millennial generation as a whole, I think they're all doing very well. But there's also that part, you see that statistic of a lot of millennials live at home with their parents and that they have a lot of student loan debt. And they might have a great job, but they're paying off debt. And so I think that the point is that this generation asks a lot of questions. And the way we work with brands, whether it's Chase or other brands and a premium sponsored brands, we say to them, you know, if you want people to watch just a trailer of something, like, don't work with us. If you want people to buy a sweater, like, we're not the, there's other places you can spend your money. But if you want to be a part of the zeitgeist of this audience, like, let us show you how to do that. How do we make making financial decisions a part of this audience's life. And one of the most amazing things is, you know, we have this ambassador program of over 14,000 um, female millennials and men uh, around around the country, uh, in, across the country, rather. And we talk to them all day long. And they're literally having conversations in our Facebook group every day of, I'm thinking of buying a house. What was that term that we learned in Scam Again that, like, would help me figure out, you know, how to get this interest rate? Or where did we learn that in the skim again? And they're literally asking each other and having conversations around how to make smart decisions. And whether that's about buying a house or planning for a vacation or trying to figure out how to get a raise at work, um, those are the types of things that we're inspiring with this community. You mentioned that this is a generation that's paying off their debt. Now that you've paid off your debt, what do you want for your future? Well, what do you want financially? I think that you know, going back to the question that you asked before, I think that this generation has had to be smarter about money because we're a generation coming out of recession. We graduated in 2008. There were no jobs. Um, I think that, you know, when I see studies about millennials being more um, saving conscious than their boomer parents, it makes total sense to me because it wasn't ever a choice. Right. I think that our generation wasn't like, oh, great, we have more information. Let's decide to be smarter or that there's more tools out there or more areas for investment. I think it's just been a necessity. Um, I don't think that there is the same type of career path that, you know, gives you the sense of um, comfort or a safety net as there once was. Um, and I think our generation has seen that firsthand in having to take on student loans in having to move in with your parents because you couldn't get a job after school or getting a job and leasing an apartment and then getting laid off. I think those are all stories that have happened to all of our friends. And we did all the quote unquote right things. You know, we went to the right schools. We applied for the right jobs. We had the right internships. 
Um, so I think that I would hope that this generation is smarter with their money, but mainly because they have to be. I think for us, what we want uh, is really simple. I think we want to make everyone involved with the skim, um, us, our parents, our investors, our employees, we want them to make money and we want to build a really big business that achieves that goal. Um, we're building something really big. We're building something that is empowering um, women and millennials to be smarter and more confident about the decisions that they're making each day. And they're interacting with news and they're wearing our swag and they're saying, I'm proud to be informed. Um, and that's something that's hugely powerful. And I think at the end of the day, uh, that power will equate to a huge opportunity for everyone that saw that vision in the beginning. Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, thanks for having us here. Thank you so Thank much you. for coming here. Oh, it's, it's so fun. Thank it's so you. fun. I want to just stay in your turquoise world. <laughs> You're welcome to. Okay. Well, that was a fun field trip. And now we are back in the studio. Kelly has joined me. Hi, Kelly. Hello. We are ready to answer some questions from our listeners. We are. What do we have? Our first one is on Facebook. Lavinia is wondering, when does someone need to hire a financial advisor? When you feel like you need a financial advisor. And Lavinia, don't kill me. I know that's really squishy advice, but I'm well-intentioned. Here's the thing. People don't come, in my experience, for financial advice just because. They come for financial advice because something happens, because they have a reason. And it could be a good thing. It could be, hey, I won the lottery. I got an inheritance. I got a big raise, and I need to know what to do with all this extra money. It could be a bad thing. I lost my spouse. My home got hurt in a hurricane. It could be just a numbers-related thing. I know a lot of people who have decided, hey, I want to see a financial advisor because I'm turning 50, and I and I want to make sure I'm on the right track. If you feel like you're facing a big decision or a big inflection point or a big milestone or that you just have a question or two that you can't answer, going to see a financial advisor is a smart thing to do. And the way to approach it is like going for a checkup. It's not that you are necessarily hiring somebody that you're going to see four times a year on a regular basis and check in with before you make any little financial decision. It doesn't have to work that way. A financial advisor can help you craft a roadmap to help you get from where you are today to where you want to go tomorrow. They can help you just by looking over the plan that you've already put together for yourself to figure out if you're on the right track. They can answer specific questions. Am I doing the right thing for a person in my tax bracket? I mean, they can get that granular with you. And they can advise you on one part of your financial life, your investments, or on your whole financial life, your investments, your taxes, your insurance, your estate. It really depends on what you need. But if you feel like you have unanswered questions, then I would say it's a really good time to see a financial advisor. And and we should talk about, because we haven't 
done this in a while where you find Mm -hmm. a financial advisor. So there are a number of ways to do this. You can ask your friends, your colleagues for recommendations. That's always a good thing to do. But there are also um, some resources. NAPFA is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Their website is napfa.org. The Financial Planning Association is fpanet.org. Org. Garrett Planning Network is a network of planners who are willing to work by and charge by the hour, hmm. which is great. It's GarrettPlanningNetwork.com. And any of these um, will have a zip code locator so that you can find somebody near you. Okay. And then I know we've talked about in our coverage before on financial planners and advisors, fee-only versus what's the other option? Fee-only versus they get paid a lot of different ways. So fee-only doesn't charge a commission on investments, but there are a lot of advisors these days who take a percentage of assets under management. Mm -hmm. There are planners who charge by the hour. The most important thing to figure out is what is this going to cost me per year? for this relationship. And that way you can compare apples to apples. We also had Liz Davidson on. That's right. That was episode 15. And she gave a lot of very targeted advice about how to find the right sort of financial planner for you. So go back and give that a listen. Great. Our next question is on Twitter. Her handle is you may call me at Miss Alex Brown. That, that's a long handle. It's I didn't know you clever. were along to... Well, I think you can write your name and your, how your name shows up to other people is separate from your actual handle. So she positioned it as you may call me dot, 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 Miss Alex Brown. Cool. Very smart. Miss Alex Brown is wondering, do balance transfers negatively impact your credit score? Another it depends sort of answer. So the part of your credit score that we're talking about here when we talk about balance transfers is mostly utilization, credit utilization, which is the percentage of outstanding credit lines that you have available that you're actually using. When you transfer your balance from one card to another, you may close a pre-existing credit line. If you do that, you are shrinking your utilization. But if you open up simultaneously another card with a utilization that's very similar to that and just move the balance over, it shouldn't hurt you. There's another smaller factor in play, though, and that's the length of your relationship with particular creditors. It matters how long you've been doing business with a creditor. So if you've got a card, for example, that you've had in your wallet for 10 years, and that's the one you're thinking of transferring the balance from, I'd be very careful about closing that card if you're expecting to apply for a mortgage or a credit line anytime in the near future, because it could actually take your credit score down a little bit. You may want to just wait until you know that you don't have another big credit event coming before you close the card. So I'm glad she asked this because I just received an offer Ah. from my credit card company. And I'm wondering, what's the incentive for them to transfer my balance that I'm currently paying interest on to a 0% card, introductory interest rate, 0% 
uh, no fee, and then it resumes. Like, should I be reading the fine print? Well, you should absolutely read the fine print before you do any sort of balance transfer because there are usually balance transfer fees uh. along the lines of 3%. Um, and so you have to be sure that you're going to make up whatever you spend on transferring that balance in paying off the debt at a lower interest rate. If you're getting offers from the same credit card issuer Mm -hmm. to transfer your balance to a new and different card, they're hoping to double down on your business. They're hoping that you are going to transfer your balance to this new card and then continue to use both cards. So they're going to get to you know, have their cake and eat it too. Well, that's tricky. It's tricky, but it happens, right? There was a, a very interesting study done when interest rates started hitting their lowest points. And it took a look at people who consolidated their credit cards using home equity loans, home equity lines of credit. And what it found was that about 40% of people who did this and used these cheaper home equity loans to pay off this more expensive, higher interest rate credit card debt then went out and charged those credit cards right back up again. Mm -hmm. And so within very little time, like three, four years, they had both more debt on their home and big credit card bills. And that's the bet that the credit card companies are making when they offer you a second credit card to have in your wallet. Well, I don't think I'm going to transfer then. Yeah. If, you know, if you do transfer, if you have, I, I hope that you're not, res- are you not, you're not revolving debt on your credit cards, are you? I've learned a lot from you and I know to pay it off in full at the end of every month. So then it's not an issue for you because if you're paying off your full balance every single month, you're never paying interest. Your interest could be 29%. It doesn't matter. You're never going to pay it. The 0% matters for people who carry a balance because then it allows them to take the credit card debt that they're paying off at 19.9%, transfer it to a 0% card and pay it off at 0% for the next year, which enables them to pay off more debt faster because they're not paying interest on that money. That makes sense. Yeah. So for you, you don't need it. Well, thank you, Miss Alex Brown, for giving me some <laughs> advice too then. Thank you, Jean. You are welcome. And I hope everybody feels like they got the answer that they were looking for. But if not, we have a new box on our website. It's on the podcast page. And If you go to jeanchatsky.com and click on the podcast page, you'll see this box pop up. It's where you can ask your questions very, very easily. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, and I'm on Instagram, too, looking for your questions. Talk to Kelly on Instagram, and I'll talk to Kelly next week. Thanks, as always, for those questions. Keep them coming. In today's Thrive segment, some sticky business. You give or loan money to friends or family members in need, but they don't pay you back. Or worse, you see them spending money, it may be your money, but maybe not, on things that you don't approve of. You want to save the relationship, so what do you do? Well, the answer is to stop before you start. Avoid loaning money to friends or family members in the vast majority of cases. If you can't afford to hand over the funds as a gift, the best thing to do is not do it at all. And if you've already done it and you want to remain friends or 
kissing cousins or whatever, then just tell the recipient you're forgiving the debt, but that you don't want to be asked for any more in the future. And then, as my husband would say, agree to never speak of it again. The same rationale, by the way, is the reason behind not co-signing for a loan for a family member. Research has shown that co-signers all too often get stuck with the debt. Now, there may be some cases, like recent college grads who have no other way to rent an apartment and have shown that they're otherwise responsible. When you will step up and do this, particularly for your kids, but this is not a road that you want to go down unless you. Absolutely have to. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. A big thank you to my guests Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, founders of The Skim. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. If you like what you're hearing, I hope that you'll subscribe to Her Money. Leave us your thoughts. Leave us a review. Leave us your suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear from in the future. We are listening. I'll see you next time. So before we leave, I noticed that we're in the munch, the munch conference room. That we are, this is yeah. not a place to eat lunch, this right? Is not, this is not for munching. No, um, but it's surrounded by Munch's friends, Benson and Stabler. So for th- those who love Law & Order SVU, um, you should love the skim because we really love it. Uh, and our conference rooms are named after Benson, Stabler, and Munch. And the reason being is when Danielle and I started the skim and we were living at home, for whatever reason, we found watching Law and Order SVU marathons to be our calming force <laughs> while we so wrote, good. and we just they kept are. them on all day. They're, and we they're wrote also every night. Super creative, yeah, very <laughs> creative. And um, I think the one of the best days since starting the skim was when we got to meet Olivia in real life, and we were like, "This is very surreal." And it was she, very. She cool. told us she read the skim, and it was very exciting. High point. Excellent. And where'd you meet her? We ran into her at a football game. Really? Oh, so it was yeah. random. It wasn't totally no, random. It was random. Yeah, we ran into her. We completely like couldn't speak. We were just like, oh my gosh. Like we couldn't speak. I couldn't open my mouth. And she also has like a real name, Rishka Hardkinek. <laughs> she's also very nice. She's very nice. And we were like, we're, we have this company called The Skim. And she's like, wait a minute, The Skim? She's like, I read it every day. And like pulls out her phone and shows it to me on her phone. And I was, I was like, I can't even speak right now. We have a great selfie from the game, and it's, like, the only picture we took at the game. But it's, like, we could not have, like, bigger smiles in this picture. Well, I hope you sent her some swag. We did. 